And will the rest of you uh, rise for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading is Galatians 3, 19-29. Why then the law? It was added because transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is no slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Word of the Lord. Thanks, Pitcon. You know, I've been I've been preaching online for the last four months. It's very weird to be in front of people again. Um, <clears throat> morning again. My name is James Cooper. Um, as was mentioned, I'm uh, going to be a master student at, at Wheaton in the fall. And right now, I'm working at a church in Oak Park, uh, Boulevard Presbyterian Church. Um, working part time there, occasionally preaching. And uh, it's my pleasure to bring the word to you this morning from Galatians. Uh, before we do that, please join me in a time of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning to be together after being so long apart. We thank you that, um, that you have spared so many of us um, and that we are able to be here today. We pray um, that you would bless us in the future um, as a church, both here particularly um, but as a church universal, that you would continue to carry us through this time. I pray that you would be with the preaching of your word this morning, that your spirit would attend to all of our hearts um, as, we, as we hear your word and as we go throughout our week um, to face some difficult things, that you would carry us through all of our trials, that you would give us peace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was thinking a little bit earlier uh, about the first time I ever attempted to bake bread. Uh, this was a new hobby. Maybe, maybe many of you have, have taken up bread baking over the last few months. Um, there's been a national shortage of yeast. I think that was all over the news a few months ago. Um, but I first got into bread baking. I was in college. Uh, I had roommates, and it was the first time I was able to decide what I wanted to eat what I would make, and bread baking seemed like a cool new thing that would lead to endless delight, I hoped. Except um, no one in my family is a baker, so I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know how to knead. I didn't know how to proof bread. I didn't know what ratio of water to flour to use. I didn't know uh, that you needed to put humidity in the oven 
to get a crispy crust, which is actually the most important part, I later found out. All I had in my head was this vision of delightful baguettes that I would crack open whenever I wanted and dip into a delicious bowl of the finest Campbell's tomato soup because that's what I could afford. Um, so I didn't know anything. Uh, so I read. I read a lot. And that's what you do when you have a new hobby. You have this explosion of enthusiasm. You read everything from everywhere, every blog, every article, every cookbook, because you have no idea who's an authority. You have no idea who to trust. You have no idea who to believe. But you just want to try it all. And this enthusiasm goes for about a week or two, and then it kind of dies. Because whereas you had visions of delicious bread, what in fact you were presented with was a flat, hot mess of something, but it's not bread. And you don't know how to who to blame. The excuses, all the excuses, they're immediate. What was me? How could this happen to me? And, uh, and guilt, and guilt, lots of guilt and shame. Because you feel like you let the entire internet who is depending on you to follow this recipe, you let them down. And that feeling only lasts for about a day because it's actually ridiculous to be depressed over a loaf of bread. But that is how many of us experience things in life playing out. Okay, this can be, this can be parenting. Uh, being a father or a husband or a mother or a wife. Um, this can be um, child rearing. Um, this can be religion. How many of us think about our faith? This can be things like finances, how best to invest our money, things like politics, what party you want to vote for, uh, things like wearing a mask. It can often feel about this feel this way. Things like racial justice in America can feel this way. Everybody's got a hot take. Everybody's got an opinion. And everybody is quite sure they have absolute certainty that they are correct. And everybody else is wrong. And you add to the fact that most of us have been stuck at home for however long it's been with nothing to do except read the entirety of the internet on everything. And the sheer weight, the sheer moral weight of the multitude can feel overwhelming. It is, it is in fact a kind of law, a kind of righteousness to think and to do the right thing and to do it immediately or face the scorn of a faceless mob from whom there is no ordinary possibility of forgiveness. We live in an age, in fact, that does not so much inspire as it shames. We do not so much aspire to be saints so much as we aspire not to be social sinners. And to this, of course, we must add our actual sins 
And, and one begins to wonder where the fear, the guilt, the shame, the self-righteousness stops. How do we find peace right now? Well, the Apostle Paul, I think, uh, begins to chart out an answer for us in Galatians 3, uh, which we just read, so I won't do that again. Um, I will say the, the most difficult part of interpreting Galatians, for me anyway, is, is figuring out exactly what is going on in the Galatian church. And this is what it seems like to me. What seems to have happened was that Paul, under whose preaching this church had been planted, he, he founded this church, and then he went away. And when he came back, what he found was that the church had been infiltrated by false teachers. They were called Judaizers. And the reason they were called that was because these false teachers insisted that Gentile Christians, that is, non-Jews, had to be circumcised. And with circumcision came certain obligations. They weren't just getting a physical mark on their body, they were obligating themselves to follow the Mosaic law. In other words, they were obligating themselves to live like Jews. And they were doing this because the Judaizers told them they had to. And Paul reminds them uh, in chapters 1 through 3 that it, it is not in fact by obedience to the law, even a good law, the law of Moses, which is indisputably good because it was given by God. It is not by obedience even to that law that one is declared righteous before God. It is, in fact, only by faith in Christ. And here in verses 19 through 22, Paul summarizes one of the ways in which the law was actually designed to function. He says, the law was not designed to give righteousness. It was not designed to save anyone. In fact, it was not designed to do that because it could not do that. It was given to imprison. It was given to condemn. Because that is what law, any law, let alone God's righteous moral law as seen in the law of Moses, does in a world of sinful human beings. And just to see that, do this thought experiment with me for a minute. Think about the last time you went a single day without breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Now, imagine for a second that you are without the knowledge of Christ, that you are without the knowledge of His forgiveness. And would that make you hopeful? Or would it make you anxious? The law does not give us peace. Instead, the law, Paul says, was intended to point us to the Prince of Peace. In other words, the law, as law, is not the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. And the Galatians had been fooled, bewitched, Paul puts it earlier on. They had been given a false gospel of salvation through law, and Paul exposes it. What is the first way we find peace? By exposing false cultural gospels we so easily believe. The way we seek to justify ourselves to ourselves and to others. 
And think for a moment uh, what that might be in your own life. And I'll give you an example from my own. Okay. For me, the, ten the way that I tend to feel good about my myself, the way I tend to find righteousness in this life, is the righteousness of intelligence, of being an intellectual. That's why I'm getting another master's degree. I already have one. That's not enough. <laughs> to know all things. That's what I want. To know all things. Or at least to be perceived to know all things. To, to educate or to belittle those who do not know or refuse to know the right things. What causes me anxiety because I do this? My anxiety comes from not knowing what to say or from being forced to give an answer when I feel like I'm unprepared. That makes me anxious. And there's a certain, there's a certain satisfaction that comes from feeling like I am part of an elite clique. There's a satisfaction that comes from within me, quite apart from any services rendered to God or to neighbor. And for you, for you, it might be, uh, some of us, the righteousness of compassion, to care, to be seen to care, to persuade, or even to shame those who do not seem to care about the things that are important to us. And your anxiety might come from not knowing how to feel sometimes, or from taking up a cause, uninspired, not being authentic enough. And I want to say that, that both of these, these ways of thinking and feeling and acting the world, these are all manifestations of law, of things we feel we ought to do and we can never really live up to. And like law, they condemn, but they do not offer forgiveness. The one, namely me, fears being found out as an intellectual fraud. The other being fears being found out as an unfeeling hypocrite. And so both in fear avoid speaking or feeling into issues which Christians ought to speak and feel about. Except, that is, to speak and feel in ways that feel safe, that feel justifying, that feel acceptable. These are false gospels. And sometimes false gospels, they, they can take on ideological forms or political forms so that belonging to the right group becomes the means of obtaining righteousness. Towing the party line takes on the sense of a, of a moral imperative to disagree with the agenda of the party risks not just social shaming, but it feels as though it actually risks the wrath of God. That's how it can feel when you so identify with a group. It can feel like the wrath of God will come upon you if you disagree. And this is what the Judaizers attempted to foist upon the Galatian Christians. But they were wrong. As Christians, the Galatians were free from the condemnation of the law. Just as you, in Christ, are free from the need to justify yourself through public perception, through family approval, 
through institutions, ideologies, political affiliations, or any of the myriad ways that any of us try to find a sense of identity in this modern world, but never actually find any peace. You are under a different covenant. You are baptized, Paul goes on to say. You belong first and foremost to Christ and his kingdom. In verses 23 through 29, Paul show, continues to explain how the law points us to Christ. He says, it was like a guardian. It was like a teacher. It was meant to show us the need we had for Christ on account of our own inability to keep God's covenant law. And that covenant law, by the way, had itself become a source of division within Christ's body, ironically. But Christ's death and resurrection fundamentally reordered the way in which Christians were to relate to God and thus to one another. Their fundamental identity was not in a law leading to righteousness, but in a person who had given them righteousness and peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. Until Paul returned, there was no peace in the soul of the Gentile believer, torn between the gospel he had heard from Paul and what he was now hearing from these Judaizers who seemed so convincing, who seemed so righteous, who seemed so powerful. The believer was not sure of his own righteousness before God because he was not sure if he had done his duty towards God. And there was no peace between believers. Those who insisted on the law and those who asserted their own freedom. The Judaizing party and the party of Paul. Peace only came when the gospel was again proclaimed and the law was put in its place. Peace came and does come, secondly, when we remember the freedom that we have in the true gospel of Christ. This is a story, it happened a few months ago. Um, just before the, the stricter shelter-in-place orders were put into effect, I think that was the end of April, and then they, took into, they came into effect in May. And just bear in mind, before I tell this story, these were, these were all the thoughts that were running through my head at the time. They weren't necessarily what I think now. And some of you may have different opinions about um, many of the things related to mask wearing and that kind of thing, but this is just what was in my head at the time. Yeah. Uh, my family and I were taking an elevator down from our apartment, we live on the ninth floor, um, just to give our two-year-old some, some fresh air. He'd been stuck inside for a while. And we thought, well, we'll just let him run around this fenced-in courtyard. He won't come into contact with anybody. Uh, he'll get to run around, get some fresh air, it'll be fine. Um, and, and to us, at least, it didn't seem like there was a need for mass. There was no legal requirement at the time. Uh, there was no reasonable chance that we were ever going to be in a place where we were going to be more than six feet in front of someone. We were just going to this little little fenced-in courtyard. Okay, and, and to me, it, it, it didn't seem necessary. And there was no legal requirement, right? There was one hiccup. Okay. I said I was in an elevator, and this was the hiccup. Now, the apartment complex had asked everyone to avoid sharing elevators. Okay, so I'm good. 
No one's going to get on the elevator with me if I don't wear a mask. Wrong. Because wouldn't you know, someone got on the elevator. Whatever, right? One person on one elevator for a minute at most, that'd be fine. Just go back to normal life. But then, and remember, okay, remember, this is, this is me at the time. This is not me right now. Um, this non-protocol following, this person that completely lacked common sense, had the audacity to berate me, to berate my family, to attempt to shame us for not wearing a mask. And I politely and firmly defended myself at the time. I say politely and firmly defended myself at the time, but really, you know what happened next, right? I, uh, I spent the next week being upset about this. For days afterward, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stop replaying it in my mind. I, I couldn't stop reviling this person. I couldn't stop thinking about how wrong she was and how dare she do that. You know, it got to the point where it didn't even really feel like she was a real person anymore. She had just kind of become an object that I could just throw my scorn and frustrations at the world at. And that, that is actually what anger does. That's what self-righteousness does. That is what it does to us. It dehumanizes people. And I realized afterwards that I had fully partaken of the spirit of this age. We obsess over rules. We obsess over laws and who's right and who's wrong. And there is no grace. There is no forgiveness. There is no freedom. There is no love. And as a nation right now, even as churches, many of us have been having very earnest in honest conversations about things, not just public health, mind you, but about race, about our history with race in this country and in our churches, and about our future together, our future common life together. And these conversations are filled with tripwires and landmines, right? I mean, you, you can just, you can name them that run across race, that run across nationality, that run across party, that run across class, age, geography, theological background, profession. And we are going to trip each other's wires at some point. There's just too many of them. Not because we mean to. In fact, in Christian, in Christian love, we should be as gentle and charitable to one another as you possibly can be. But it's inevitable that we're going to upset each other. And, and when that happens, how will we respond? How will you as an individual respond? Will you retreat into the silence of guilt, of shame, of indignation, lash out in anger? Or will you become overcome with anxiety over the future? Or will you, in the righteousness of Christ, find peace? And from that peace, seek peace. This word moderation, people see that as a, as a weak word. 
but moderation, a listening ear, an empathetic heart, an open mind, a slow tongue, a willingness to be wrong, or at least to withhold judgment for now. These are not signs of passivity or weakness, an unwillingness to take up a just cause, which, by the way, we should do in our vocations as citizens and neighbors, and that's the topic of a whole other sermon. But rather, these are signs of an inner peace that surpasses the need to be righteous, that surpasses the need to usher in a kingdom of righteousness by earthly means. It is a peace that the world can neither give us nor can it understand. And it is a witness to this world that is constantly at war with itself. You belong to a different kingdom. Let us pray for the Spirit's help in the days ahead. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word from your apostle who understood so well the ways in which we, even as well-meaning Christians, often find ways to divide. We pray that uh, as we have difficult conversations in the country, in our churches, with friends and neighbors, that the gospel would not be obscured by the ways in which we divide. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.